The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today we're going to be talking about something that's in our front pages, our news every single day, workplace violence. It seems like every day we hear about another shooting. It's become so commonplace that it's barely even front page news. There's been seven school shootings since January 9th. Six of them were between the 10 days between the 14th and the 24th. And just a few days ago, there was a shooting at the Columbia Mall where two employees were shot. And the, the shooter then killed himself. So three people dead. Workplace violence is so complex and so multidimensional. It may be a result of a conflict with another employee. It may be the result of something that's going on at home with somebody's friends. It could be a a myriad of reasons. It could be in an office, at school, or a warehouse. And the approaches to preventing violence require a, a very active and creative multidisciplinary approach. Today, my guest is private investigator Eugene Ferraro. He's an expert on threat assessment and the author of several books on workplace investigations. He's going to be addressing workplace violence, and he's going to provide some strategies for managers and administrators and, and of course, business owners to, to deliver a safe and secure workplace. So let me introduce you to my good friend, Eugene Ferraro. He's the founder and chief ethics officer of Convergent Incorporated from Denver, Colorado. He's been a corporate investigator for over 29 years. I mean, I don't even think he's that old, but that's okay. We won't address that. He's conducted thousands of investigations for employers, both public and private, throughout the United States and, and internationally. He specializes in investigating and preventing workplace violence, employee dishonesty, fraud, harassment, discrimination, substance abuse, ethical misconduct, and all of these things that are happening or seem to be happening today in our workplaces. His expertise includes loss prevention, asset protection, security management, all those kinds of things. And his clients are some of the most successful law firms and corporations and insurance companies in the country. He is a published author and book critic. He's authored numbers of books on the subject of workplace investigation. He lectures frequently on topics of workplace investigations, applicant screening, employee misconduct, and he's a past president and past chairman of the board of the National Council of Investigative Security Services. And welcome, Gene. That was a mouthful. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) 
That's quite an introduction, <laughs> I, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great. You're uh, you're a great uh, a resource for for this topic, and I really appreciate you being on the, the show. Uh, I know you have uh, a series. I'm looking at your your bio information, Eugene F. Ferraro, CPP, CFE, PCI, SPHR. What does all that mean? <laughs> well, <clears throat> Francie, like you, I have professional certifications. Um, today, uh, certifications or credentials are an important element for most of those who, who provide or engage in professional services. Mine include board certification in security management, board certification in human resource management, as well as uh, certification as a certified fraud examiner and a professional certified investigator. And what they really do is demonstrate to my customers, the court, and others who are interested in the services people like myself and you provide the assurances that we meet certain standards and have certain skills, abilities, um, and training to perform the types of things that we typically engage in. And when you say board certified, who are the boards? Well, it depends upon the organization. Um, as most of our li- listeners would probably know, the medical profession was one of the first to really <clears throat> extend and certify its members. So a physician may have a license to practice medicine in a particular state, but he or she goes on to obtain a certification or board certification in a specialty. In our profession, the security and investigation industry, there's a number of different organizations, California Association of Licensed Investigators, um, as well as ASIS International, the Certified uh, Fraud Examiners, and, and the, the last uh, uh, is uh, the Society for Human Resource Management. And each of those design, build, and manage certification programs, which involve taking a test and meeting certain standards in mm-hmm. order to have the credential. Yeah, and they're not easy. <laughs> no, they're not easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some are very uh, rigorous and some are difficult, yeah. appropriately. Yeah. So. yeah, very good. Okay, mm-hmm. well... Before we get into talking about this, um, I know you've written a number of books. Um, I, in fact, I just went online and looked at them all uh, a few days ago. But um, what are you trying to accomplish in your books, Jean? <laughs> That's a good question. My, my wife asks me that <laughs> yes. all the time. I, I am a serial writer. I've been writing for uh, more than 25 years. Um, when I got into the profession, that is the private investigation, corporate investigation world, um, there wasn't much on the topic. Um, in, in the sciences from which I came, um, there was a lot published on the types of things and, and, and types of studies that I was interested in. In our profession, there was very little. So I accumulated information and one day decided to write a book. That first book was entitled, You Can Find Anyone, specifically on how to find and locate missing persons. And it was a big success. As my experience built, I learned more, became uh, more proficient. My interest expanded, and I I became interested in corporate investigation, specifically uh, of the sort that you described in your introduction. Those things having to do with specifically employee misconduct, theft, dishonesty, and those types of things. Mm -hmm. And I began to compile information on those as well and decided, you know, I want to share that information. It's appropriate, like this program, 
the opportunity, Francie, that you provide individuals like myself, you provide your audience the opportunity to learn more and better understand the profession and how some of these types of things um, actually work. And that was the impetus. So, mm-hmm. yes, I've written quite a bit. I've uh, just completed my 11th book, and I'm working on two more That's as we amazing. speak. That's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. I'm so... Um, uh, I'm so astonished, 11 books, and I haven't written my first one. <laughs> so there you go. Well, so um, you became quite interested in workplace violence. Indeed. Um, I, I owe a credit to that to a, a, a mutual colleague, uh, Jim Kaywood, uh, Who we both California, yes. member of the California yes. Association of Licensed Investigators. And in fact, yeah. it was at a Cali conference I first heard uh, Jim Kay would speak. And I would suspect or recall it was about 1987. And he talked about this thing called workplace violence. I had heard a little bit about it, as did some people. But Jim was able to put it in, into a form that I think anybody in the audience could understand and brought together a lot of that which I had seen in the conduct of my workplace investigations, employees acting out inappropriately, hurting, assaulting others, stalking others, and I never glued it together, and Jim did that, and uh, struck my interest. And very shortly after that uh, conference, I had an inquiry. I was working in Los Angeles at the time by a, a, a longtime client who had such a problem. I talked to the client, said, yep, I think I can help. I called Jim Kaywood. He walked me through my first investigation. And that was the, mm-hmm. the very beginning. A lot has changed since those um, early thought leaders. But sure. <clears throat> today we know much more about the problem. We know more about what precipitates it. And, of course, very, very usefully, we understand how we can better manage it. And that's really a key. So is there a definition of workplace violence, Jim? Yeah, and that's probably a good place to start. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about what workplace violence is and what it's not. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for the purposes of our discussion, as I share with many of my students, it's really a term that uh, refers to an assortment of behaviors that are intended to frighten, intimidate, or harm. Um, where there's a nexus between the perpetrator or perpetrators in some instances and the organization or its employees, regardless of when or where the behavior occurs. In other words, it has to do with behaviors associated with the organization or its employees and other people. Unlike a bank robbery where they show up, rob a bank, hurt an employee or customer, there, there, there is no relationship other than that particular event. Workplace violence is a little bit different, that there is some existing <clears throat> relationship between the perpetrator and the people who become their victims. Well, and I, you know, and I think that probably uh, generally people believe that workplace violence comes, you know, like the um, postal workers, what we call going postal, um, where that happened with employees in the post office. And it really encompasses people even that maybe um, has, a, has a spouse that there is abusive and wants to retaliate against somebody or, and really encompasses much more than just within the workplace. Yeah, it, 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 it does, uh, Francie. Today we've seen uh, 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 an increase in the frequency and incidence of uh, domestic partner violence spilling mm-hmm. into the workplace, or what we, we at one time called domestic violence, uh, 
spilling into the workplace. And it mm-hmm. kind of makes sense when you, when you unpack it. In the case of domestic violence, <clears throat> very often the victim seeks assistance in, in shelter, often separating them by not only distance, but restraining orders and other protective tools so that the perpetrator or aggressor, their spouse, <clears throat> cannot get to them, hurt them, or their, or their children. But there's always one place where the perpetrator, or as we call them, the aggressor, can always find that target, mm-hmm. and that's in the workplace. So for the workplace sure. tends to be a magnet for this type of behavior. And I, at the same time, I would think that... You know, like our concept of schools, which has certainly changed recently, that people feel like that's a safe place to be. Well, that's very true. And, and that demonstrates one of the, the, the myths about this problem. We, we have, as humans, the desperate need to find solutions to complex and disturbing problems. And most often we're successful. But there are some types of problems that are very difficult, if not impossible, to solve. There are going to be circumstances in which, in spite of all that we do, all of the precautions that we take, there are certain things and people we're not going to be able to protect. And unfortunately, schools largely are, 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 are such places where we have the, 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 the accumulation of people, specifically young people, children, in a defenseless, open, although sometimes slightly controlled environment, that is the doors are locked, um, we have them concentrated in a place that makes them a very easy target. Gene, can you hang on to that thought for just a second while I take a a quick break? Sure, sure. And come back to that? Okay, thanks. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Jean Ferraro is a private investigator and an expert on workplace violence. So, Jean, I interrupted you midstream. Go ahead with your thought. Well, my, my point was that this, Francie, that there are circumstances and environments which are very difficult to control. With the, with, with the uh, ever-increasing threat of terrorism, we've gone to enormous extremes to protect our airports and air transportation. But the solutions that we use to protect those who are traveling are not practical or affordable for schools. There's far more schools mm-hmm. and places of education than there are um, airports. So there are, there are some trade-offs. That's not to say that we value our children or teachers less. It's simply that we have to understand that there are going to be some challenges and um, we're not going to always achieve perfection. Well, and, you know, and the same thing with any business. Uh, I mean, it's this kind of um, control is extremely expensive. And businesses, for example, are always on working on a very small margin in, anyway. That's so right. how, do you, how do you do this? How do you manage all this? Well, it's a very good question. And, and fortunately, um, many organizations have asked this question. And it's one of the reasons we've seen the steady decline since 1994 in the incidence of uh, workplace violence. In fact, the CDC, which was the first to begin to capture the data surrounding the frequency of this problem and reports annually on it <clears throat> reveals that last year less than 500 fatalities occurred in the workplace or similar circumstances uh, relative to workplace uh, violence. Um, almost like 25% uh, of the number of 1994. So we've seen a, a steady decline in the frequency. Huh. And I think we owe that to a number of different things. Better understanding the problem, recognizing that every organization has a responsibility to minimize it, and then appropriately responding. For example, establishing a policy and communicating expectations to uh, one's employees or workforce. For example, telling the employees that inappropriate behavior, shouting, screaming, pushing, shoving, and hurting one another is unacceptable. And provide a mechanism so when it does occur, employees have, have a vehicle or, or, or ability to report it so the management can intervene. And the second component is designing and implementing an intervention strategy. What do we do as an organization when this type of thing occurs? When it is reported to us and from a credible source that this type of behavior is taking place in the workplace or a threat is imminent, how do we respond to it? And it's putting together the, the strategy that's effective, it's safe, it's fair, it's legal, um, and provides the protection desired. So th- those are the types of things that organizations yeah. can do, and to a very large degree, frankly, uh, have. And just to give you an example, at one time, <clears throat> not long ago, we, we employed seven full-time sprint, 
seven full-time forensic psychologists to deal with nothing but helping us <clears throat> conduct our threat assessments. That is dealing with employees who report, individuals who reported to their employers uh, there was a threat in the workplace, and we were asked to provide the intervention strategy and to help assess the dangerousness of the individual. We employed mm-hmm. seven people to do that. Today, we only have two. And it's, not, and, it, and it's not because we're not marketing that service. It's because the demand for the service has declined because employers have done such a powerful uh, and good job at it. Well, and, and you meant the, the basis you mentioned. I, it really starts with employees being aware of what other employees are doing and not, not writing it off just because, well, that's the crazy guy that sits down the hall or, or <laughs> that's, you know, they're always like that. They're always, they're always saying inappropriate things and kind of, you know, just ignoring the possibility that this could be a problem because management often doesn't even hear about that unless the line employees, the employees that are, are working together, tell them. That's right. In the past, the first time <clears throat> the employer heard about it or learned of the problem was when the police arrived in response to a shooting incident. Today, mm-hmm. employers have done a better job. They've reestablished um, or, or established boundaries and expectations on the workforce and put into place mechanisms for the employees who have concerns or have information to come, for, come forward early enough that intervention without prosecution, without law enforcement involvement is possible. And part of that is putting aside the types of uh, uh, rationalization we had in the past. And you described one where we accept a person who has consistently and historically acted inappropriately, said inappropriate things, and we in management or coworkers have said, you know, that's just the way Gene is. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be the way Gene is, but it's not accept- acceptable. And what we know about <clears throat> of violence today as it occurs in the workplace, that is a component of, uh, of, of progr- or a progression in which we see those individuals acting out over a period of time of ever-increasing inappropriate behavior. And as we get closer and closer to the physical assault or the physical contact between the, the individuals where someone was actually hurt, our options diminish and the amount of time we diminish. In other words, if, 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 if there's an outburst, an emotional outburst in a staff meeting and someone says something inappropriate to a coworker or a supervisor, manager has, management has many different responses or, or, or things it can do to deal with that. It can have a coaching and counseling session. It can put the employee on suspension. It can subject them to sensitivity training, a whole bunch of things. But by the mm-hmm. time the progression escalates to the point that an employee brings guns and bullets to work, there's right. not a lot of time, and there's not a lot of options left. So, <clears throat> so the secret is to identify these progressions and these behaviors early enough to allow management the, the time to appropriately respond. Okay, so how does a company put together a program to address, I mean, what small companies, I mean, you know, we have the whole spectrum of thousands of employees or three. So, so how do you balance that for a prevention program? Okay, and it's, it sounds like a daunting task. It does. Task. <laughs> 
but it's easier than it at first appears. The first place is for management, as I said, recognize that this is an issue and it has some responsibility for for those in the for the safety of those in the workplace. Step number one. Step number two is address that concern and responsibility with the development, promulgation, and communication of a policy that says certain types of behaviors and conduct in the workplace are not acceptable. And when discovered, these are going to be the management's responses. And it could be simply saying no shouting, pushing, or shoving, or using inappropriate language in the workplace. And those that do will be subject to investigation and possible discipline. Simple mm-hmm. enough. And that's communicated to the employees. Then training, the next step is to train managers on how to intervene. What do you say to those individuals who are reported to have behaved this way? How do we respond and what do we do for the, the victim or target of that type of behavior? And that involves some, uh, some degree of training and some degree of sophistication. Not a great deal, but it's simply saying to supervisors, if you come across this or somebody tells you about it, you don't tell the employee to, to, to rough it out, tough it out, and, and get back to work. You report it to upper management. And mm-hmm. upper management then has a strategy. They use resources like Jim Kaywood or myself or internal resources, if it's a large organization, to undertake an investigation, determine what the facts truly are, and then in, in, implement an intervention strategy. And in many cases... It's not just firing the employee, <clears throat> which we don't do anymore, by the way, because the firing really? of an employee who engages in that type of behavior yeah. um, uh, uh, could actually precipitate the very thing you're trying to prevent. Exactly. So it would what, escalate the situation. Okay. And that's scary. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> What's more, if, the, if there are things going on in their life, which psychologists call stressors, bankruptcy, financial problems, problems at home, marriage, whatever the case may be. And you pull everybody that financial in, everybody rug in the United the States. <laughs> Pardon me? That's everybody in the United States, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. <laughs> of course. But you pull, you pull that financial rug out beneath them. Now there's another stressor <clears throat> and uh, uh, possibly pushing the, the individual over the edge. So <clears throat> in most of those cases where separation is necessary, um, we uh, undertake a separation negotiation with the employee. We tell them, you know what, that behavior is unacceptable, it violates our policy and expectation, you can't work here anymore. However, <clears throat> um, in recognition of your two years, five years, 25 years of service, that we're going to allow you to resign in lieu of termination. Here's a separation package, continuation of benefits under COBRA or any other appropriate law and assistance to the individual to put their life back into order so that they can move on, provide protection for their family, that is financial protection to the extent possible, and reestablish boundaries. For example, no coming back to our workplace after this, Mm -hmm. no sending emails to our employees, whatever the case may be. So those are some of the strategies. And frankly, very often, they're not expensive, not complicated. They just need mm-hmm. to be thought, thought through. And when you say um, the information needs to be in, uh, communicated to all the employees, this actually needs to be written into the employee handbook. Absolutely. Like a, sec- like a sexual harassment policy, for example. That's right. Or- the organization has to, in some form, um, uh, codify uh, th- their expectations and responses to this type of 
uh, behavior or, or, or problem. And employees want to know, how far can I go? What should I do if something like this happens to me? Mm-hmm. Or I'm a victim. Or I find out about it in the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it's not burdensome. It's not complicated. Employees expect that. And frankly, so do the courts. When we see these cases go sideways, people do get hurt, they're going to be litigated. And the big question is going to be in front of the, uh, in front of the employer is what did you do to prevent it? How did you not know? And, and what precautions did you take? Okay, we need to take another break. Sure. Don't go away. Gene will be right back discussing workplace violence. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Gene, let's talk about some of the factors that, and by the way, this is Gene Ferraro, private investigator, expert in workplace violence. Let's talk about um, some of the factors that companies, business owners should consider as risk factors, like, you know, if, if employees are working at night, for example. Okay. Um, yeah, let's, let's do that. But instead, let's start with some of the more common risk factors relative to the individual. And then we'll talk okay. about the environment. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, at one time, there was the belief that uh, professionals like myself, psychologists, lawyers, HR professionals had somehow devised a profile that uh, they could use to identify the potential aggressor. Well, we've learned that the, that type of profiling 
really is not effective. What's more, um, there's no empirical data to support it. So today we talk in terms of risk factors. And here are just a, a, a few when considering the type of individual <clears throat> that is uh, 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 likely or possibly going to act out inappropriately. And first and foremost is a history of past violence. Um, okay. It's been said, and I truly believe that the best predictor of future behavior is, uh, is past behavior. So one of the things we're going to look at is a history of violence, and that's why a pre-employment screening is so important from an employer's perspective, uh, pre-identifying individuals who have this potential. The next factor is poor impulse control, Such unsuccessful personal history, difficulties in their life. It may be uh, a, a series of divorce, run-ins with the law, other difficulties. That doesn't necessarily say that the individual should not be employed or given more scrutiny than someone who doesn't have uh, 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 that history. It simply says when we look at the totality of the individual who acts out these ways, these are some of the common commonalities. A couple of more is the degree of obsession. Are they the type of person that that never surrenders a grudge, has the difficulty in moving on, who has constantly feels that they or their particular group is a victim. And then they, they, they prosecute that, victim, uh, 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 that victimhood to the point of extremes, disrupting ultimately the workplace. So there are tools and abilities that we have to look at a particular individual once identified as a possible problem, that is, they acted out inappropriately in a staff meeting, we can, mm-hmm. we can take a look at them and begin to ascertain the potential risk. The employer can do the same thing <clears throat> without specificity to the individual, but looking at the organization and its operations, and you mentioned a couple of them. Hours of operation. Um, what are the risks if our, our, our business, place of business, is open to the public until 2 a.m.? Mm-hmm. What is the amount of supervision that we have on any particular shift or any particular time of day? Do we have the ability to, to monitor our employees? Or, or, or are our employees spread all over the city driving delivery trucks where the only time we see them is in the morning when they pick up their load, in the afternoon when they bring back their vehicle? So those mm-hmm. types of things have to be factored in in the employer identifying the risk. What's more, there's some industries that tend to be more risk-prone than others, and very unfortunately, um, healthcare is one of them. If anybody, uh, including yourself, have been in a hospital recently, particularly emergency room, most emergency rooms today are equipped with metal detectors and uniformed security professionals, often right. armed, Right. to protect not only the, the, the patients, but the hospital staff as well. So it depends upon uh, the, the, the environment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it, it is really amazing how many places you go to today where there are security guards, including the local staples, for example, in their, on their night shift. Well, you know, but we're not as far uh, down that path as countries like the Philippines. In the Philippines, for example, uh, a place in which I've done training, um, every business that is open has to have at least one armed security guard during all hours of operation, every type of business. For that reason, there are 15,000 security guard companies in the city of Manila alone. 
Imagine that. That's a, yeah, that's astonishing. Okay. And, yeah. uh, so we're not, and we're going we're that not, direction, unfortunately. Right. We're, we're not there yet, and I don't think we ever, ever will. Um, but it's the employer who, who thinks about the problem, the risk, and makes an intelligent uh, decision as to how to respond, which is going to ultimately save lives. That's how it works. And Gene, is there a is there some place if a business owner is listening to this show and and they want to research this further and get more information about how to set up a program for their their office or their business, where would they go to get that? Okay, well, <clears throat> there's a wealth of information on the internet, but the best and fastest place to get quality information is through ASIS International, and that website is asisonline.org. Org. ASIS is a professional society of which I am a, a member, and I think maybe you are too, are you? Yes, I am. Okay. It's a professional so, uh, society for those in the investigation and security industry. And among all of the types of things that ASIS does, and its 40,000 members do, is promulgate the guidelines and standards. And uh, just recently, they published the first uh, American National Standard on Workplace Violence Prevention and Intervention. And that document is downloadable from the ASIS website. It is Great. a peer-reviewed, consensus-built document which discusses, discusses the evolution of the problem, appropriate responses to the problem from both a prevention and intervention standpoint, as well as employer obligations and duties. It's probably... One of the easiest to read, easiest to use documents on the topic. And I recommend it to every one of my clients, even those that engage me and ask for the, for the assistance to help them uh, through such a problem. So and, it's a must and within read. That, and it, within, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Within that document, Gene, is there a, a sample uh, policy that, that a company could adopt without yeah. recreating the wheel? Yes. The document contains a sample policy which, which can uh, be developed. But here, here's, a, here's a caveat. Um, instead of copying the policy of someone else or even using the template provided by ASIS, as good as the, that is, I would strongly recommend to our listeners, if interested in developing such a policy, research it as we just talked about, identify a policy that they think fits them, add to it, modify it for their special circumstances, and then have competent labor counsel review it for the purpose of ensuring that it complies with both state and federal law and is defensible should the worst ever occur. Okay. All right. So, um, now I know law enforcement gets involved in this. So if there's a problem, when, when is law enforcement contacted? Or does it have to be the event, that, the bad event, that, where they get called in? Well, <clears throat> the easy answer is it depends. Um, law enforcement, like uh, 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 most employers, have become more sophisticated in dealing with this problem. Ten years ago, an employer who thought or, or knew a, a, a threat existed within their workplace and called law enforcement, the cops would show up with uh, 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 screaming black and whites, sirens and lights, charge into the facility, talk to the individual, confront them in front of others. I'm talking about the alleged aggressor or threatener mm-hmm. um, and ask them if they said what they allegedly said and uh, possibly take them away from further questioning. Very disruptive, 
um, and not very effective. Today, law enforcement plays a far different role. There are much more sophisticated departments such as LAPD, um, uh, the San Francisco Police Department, and others have <clears throat> details that is trained officers and detectives that are exclusively responsible for uh, dealing with this type of problem and assisting employers uh, through it. And probably on, on the forefront is LAPD with their threat management group. Oh, interesting. Yep. So, so, if, so let's, let's play out a scenario here. Um, somebody is making inappropriate comments, maybe bullying other employees, you know, whatever's going on. Then what goes in place first? Okay, let's say you were the employer and you brought that to me um, and chose me as your resource to help you with that problem. The first thing I would do is ask to see your policy. What, what does your policy say is acceptable, not acceptable? And, and what are the appropriate responses per that policy for uh, management? Then I would undertake some fact-finding. Simply because it's alleged that Gene, for example, spoke out inappropriately, pushed somebody in the locker room, doesn't necessarily mean that's true. So some fact-finding needs to take place, <clears throat> and we ultimately need to talk to the alleged victim if we can identify that person. Some of these reports are anonymous. If we can identify that person and ultimately talk to um, the, the alleged perpetrator, depending upon the nature of the threat, how much we know about it, and what we're able to substantiate, it may be appropriate to ask the employee in question, that is the threatener, to, to leave the premises um, and leave work on a, a paid leave status so that the organization has the time and opportunity to breathe, sort it out, and decide next steps. So that is separating the threatener from the target if the, if the parties are known and it's possible. That's, the, the, that's done first. Next, the, completing the fact-finding, determining if there are, is there any cooperation, is there other evidence in today's electronic world. Invariably, we're going to find electronic evidence, whether it's emails, digital images, text messages, or other types of things that can be used to substantiate or refute the allegation. Putting together the case from a factual basis. And based upon the outcome of those interviews, fact-finding, evidence review, a determination is made whether or not a policy violation has occurred, and given the organization's past practices, history, and policies, what's the appropriate response? And if the response is simply to give the employee a, a first-time written warning, so be it, that's done, and the matter is, is completed. If it's something more serious than that, for example, separation, then a separation strategy like we discussed earlier needs to be put together and negotiated with the employee. Okay, so at that so so you determine that there is a a real threat. Then when does law enforcement get contacted? Well, it depends upon the nature of the threat. Let's say for example, the th the threat includes Gene bringing to to work a loaded gun and Gene having to displayed or threatened others with that uh, gun. Very uh -huh. serious matter. And I wouldn't suggest to any employer, private investigator, uh, uh, other than Superman, to confront that type of individual. Right. That's a matter we would bring to the, to the attention of authorities and ask for assistance, whether it is to confront the individual in a fashion that protects everybody involved, 
confront the individual at a place away from work, depending upon the facts and fact pattern, we would decide a strategy. And today, as I said, law enforcement's much more agreeable to work with uh, consultants, lawyers, forensic psychologists, employers, to develop a strategy that works for everybody. At the same time, preserving the dignity of the threatener. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. We need to come back again, uh, Gene. More to come with Gene Ferraro and workplace violence. Stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Gene and I are back talking about workplace violence. And one thing that comes to mind, Gene, um, is I would suspect that it, it's probably not infrequent that you get called in on a workplace violence situation where there isn't a policy. Yes. Um, it's not as common as it once was, but occasionally that is, is the case. In the world of human resource management, and employment law, there is something called public policy. For example, I've yet to find an organization that had a policy that, that banned murder. Okay? Right. It's public <laughs> policy that that type of behavior right. is unacceptable in the workplace. So in the absence of a specific <clears throat> policy relative to this topic, we will generally rely upon what is called public policy. So we can still confront the employee. We can still take action. However, if challenged, and depending upon the discipline that is dispensed against the, the alleged behavior, the employee can sometimes challenge it, saying that the, response, the public policy response and discipline did not match the offense. 
So it, it, it adds a, a ripple or wrinkle to, to the equation, but it's not insurmountable. Okay. And, and I suspect also that you have many situations where employees aren't comfortable with coming forward about another employee who's misbehaving. What do you suggest for addressing that? Well, there are a number of different uh, solutions. And and once again, in our uh, miraculous electronic age, there are many that are, in fact, electronic. One of the most common and a tool that has been around for several decades is an anonymous reporting system, a whistleblower hotline that is made available to employees, all workers, and in many cases, customers, students, if it's a a school or university, but those who have a relationship with the organization as well as those that work in it so that they can anonymously report issues of concern, whether it's the threat of violence, inappropriate behavior, harassment, discrimination, whatever the case may be. Modern tools such as that provide the opportunity to report anonymously via the telephone or the Internet. My company operates such a, a and has done so for oh, maybe 12 or 13 years. And today we handle about 61,000 reports. Amazing. Imagine that? No, I can't. Yeah. And, and so, so you get an anonymous report, however way you get that anonymous report. I, how can you, where do you even start? Well, <clears throat> it depends upon the detail that's provided by the uh, 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 reporting party. Remarkably, however, <clears throat> less than 30% of all reports that we receive and process, and industry-wide for that matter, talking to our competitors, less than 30% are made anonymously. In most cases, over 70%, the reporting party not only identifies themselves, mm. but tells us when they make the report, they want to be identified to the person they are reporting on, be identified by name, so that they know they were the one that turned them in. Isn't that amazing? Interesting. That is amazing. And it, it makes me wonder that, that yeah. they evidently don't have confidence in their management to report it to the management. Well, it may not be the fact that they haven't uh, the confidence. It may be the fact, and often is, that they reported it, but management didn't appropriately respond. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. the the hotline or whistleblower hotline was the uh, 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 resource of last resort. But going back to what happens if it's anonymous? Mm-hmm. How do we investigate that? Well, it depends upon the, the nature of the allegation. Uh, surprisingly, most often when we investigate these things, when in fact the, the initiating report was anonymous, we find that management had some suspicion or other information which they had not connected the dots and realized that a problem was, was actually afoot. So we often find that management has more information. And even if executive management um, uh, doesn't have that information, as we begin to peel back the skin of the onion and talk to supervisors, managers, they say, yeah, you know, we've had that problem a long time in our department. We, we've never been able to figure out who it was, but everybody has a su- suspicion that it was Gene. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Okay, now at least we have a starting place. It doesn't necessarily mean that he or she is ultimately responsible and that we should rely upon the suspicion of others, but at least it provides a starting place. 
And depending upon the nature and the specificity of the allegation, we can generally determine whether or not it's credible, reliable, and most importantly, actionable. And I suppose, if nothing else, it um, activates everybody's antennas. It does. In some cases, um, <clears throat> we have a situation where there isn't enough substance to, 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 to uh, verify or enough proof to verify the allegation to corroborate it in the proper legal term. Um, and nothing can be done about it. We might decide that as a result of this exercise and having talked to employees, coworkers, supervisors, and others, many people didn't know that the organization had, for example, a hotline. Or they didn't mm-hmm. know the organization had a workplace violence policy. So what we might recommend under those circumstances is some form of training or communication uh, a campaign to better educate, better inform the workforce. So should this problem ever occur again or something like it, Everybody's uh, better off and better prepared. So it depends upon the facts, depends upon the circumstances. And, of course, paramount and uh, that which always comes first is safety. What are the safety concerns? What, what, are the, what is the urgency? And, and what are our obligations to protect those that are most vulnerable? And the employer, bottom line, is the employer has the responsibility to provide a safe workplace. They do. Uh, ethically or morally, uh, as well as statutorily. Uh, Think about things like OSHA, for example, which obligates the employer um, to provide a healthy and safe workplace free of all known risks. So, Uh yes, employers do have that obligation, but they also don't have the obligation to provide an impenetrable island of safety either. There are going to be certain things out of control or beyond the control of an employer. Right. So if... If somebody that's listening to the show is interested in your hotline program at Convergent, how would they go about contacting you? Well, the best place to go and the easiest place to go is to our website, and, and that is actually Conversant, C-O-N-V-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com. Oh, I'm and pronouncing it incorrectly. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. Um, <clears throat> but they can go to that website and request a demo or simply uh, um, uh, uh, talk to one of our uh, online um, uh, chat, chat room uh, technicians and discuss what they're thinking about, what their needs are, and we can point them in the direction, whether it's a, po- a, a policy or a resource like those provided by ASIS, and, and provide the information that they're looking for. So easy and readily yeah. available okay. 24-7. Good. And, Say and that might again? might I ask 170 languages? Our call center handles calls in 170 languages. 170 languages. Okay, and give the number again. The address is Conversant, C-O-N-V-E-R-C-E-N-T. Okay, all right. uh, Once they log on, they can go live chat, or they can actually uh, ping us or uh, search for the information they want. Perfect. Well, Gene, we're uh, almost at the end of our show. It, thank you so much. This has been so instructive. I uh, really appreciate you being here today. And, folks, if you're interested on ad- for advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact my wonderful producer of this show, Sandra Rogers, at Sandra.Rogers, S-A-N-D-R-I. I can't talk today. S-A-N-D-R-A dot Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at VoiceAmerica, one word, dot com. So, uh, again, Jane, thank you. It, uh, this is a fascinating topic, and I know that you're, you've been quite involved with it for a number of years, and I appreciate your expertise. 
been my pleasure, Francie, and thank you to your audience. And uh, as they say, be safe out there. All right. Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Gene Ferraro. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.